G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Speaking of giants, we are finally going to talk about the Nephilim today. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, that's right, Chris. No more teasing, no more rabbit trails. Let's get into it. I can't believe we're here after more than five seasons of the show. I can't believe our listeners actually waited this long. I can't believe I've still got stuff to say about this that I haven't already said in my book or in the last five seasons. And now that I've got you really hooked, let's get started with a reading of Genesis 6, verse 4 from the NIV. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. So when they say Nephilim in the NIV, are they just leaving that word there without translating it? Like they translated every other word in the Bible, but not that one? Yeah, it's kind of like that, Chris. I'd say that's exactly what they've done. But how are people supposed to know what it means if they don't translate the word? We're not mind readers here. Well, that's a good question. You might have noticed when I read from the NLT last time that they actually have the phrase giant Nephilites. I guess that's what you do when you want to translate it, but you also want to leave it open to ambiguity. It's redundant, though, because they've introduced another word which means the same as the word they're interpreting. I believe that might be called tautology, if my English uh, schoolwork uh, reminds me of anything, like saying dead corpse or giant giants or ATM machine, which always frustrates me. That's exactly right and correct. I guess they're leaving it there for the sake of allowing people to make up their own mind on what it means. You'll notice that in the written text, they use a capital N as if it's a proper name. That's interesting because we don't get any indication in the Hebrew text that it should be understood as a name. But if you thought it was a name, then you wouldn't look for a translation. You'd just accept that it's a name. Nephilite sounds like the name of a tribe or something, doesn't it? So how are we supposed to understand that? Well, we're used to seeing the word Nephilim in our Bibles because of the reluctance of translators to actually engage with the terminology. But the problem with that familiarity is that we've gotten used to seeing a corrupted form of transliteration. Where we see that term Nephilim, we're reading not exactly what the text says in Hebrew, but what the biblical scribes, redactors, and later translators thought it should say in Hebrew, and it gets inserted in our text as a transliteration so that it can be read in English. We all understand that biblical Hebrew was written without vowels, right? And each term is constructed from what they call a triliteral root. So in transliteration for us English readers, that looks like N-P-L. And because it's assumed to be a masculine plural term in Hebrew, we get a suffix on the end, which is the M endings, though. From the four letters, N, P, L, and M, translators then had the task of filling out the vocalization by inserting the relevant vowels. But vocalization was never preserved in the original text, so we're at the mercy of translators. Or are we? You see, the vocalization changes what the word means, but word meaning is defined by context. That means instead of deciding how we want to say the word first and then importing that meaning into the text, we're required to read and understand the text before we settle on a decision as to what the word means. 
we talked many times in the past about the way that the Masoretic text is sometimes really good and sometimes really bad at helping us to understand terminology. And this is one of those instances where it lets us down quite badly. It's also one of those occasions where it looks like there may have been some intentionality behind the obscurity. Again, I've already talked at length about the conspiracy of rabbinic Judaism to obscure the ancient Hebrew doctrine of God having sons, because if God could have sons, then that would potentially legitimize Jesus as Messiah, and they don't want that. So that means no sons of God in Genesis, no sons of God in Job, no sons of God in Deuteronomy, no sons of God in Psalm 82, and definitely no son of God in the person of Jesus. That's why I always encourage students of the Bible to consider the original Hebrew form that existed prior to the Masoretic text. But that's going to take some effort. So that's where we should be looking at the context, right? Yeah, unfortunately, we get hampered somewhat in those efforts when the relevant text is very small and doesn't offer much detail. And that's one of the problems we have in Genesis 6. In that situation, the word that would give us details to help us interpret the rest of the passage is the one that we're having trouble with. Contextually, all we have to go on is the notion of human and divine mixture, which results in an increase in violence. The Nephilim are not described. So that's where the passage in Numbers is going to help us. And what we're going to find is not that the Nephilim get described, but rather that Nephilim functions as a description of the people in the text. So of the two places in the book of Numbers where we find the term Nephilim in our Bible, it's written in two different ways. It's the tiniest little variation. One of the two spellings of the word uses the same suffix on the end as we find in Genesis 6. There's that letter M that I mentioned, which denotes the masculine plural form in Hebrew. So Nephilim is a plural noun, and we know that because Hebrew masculine plurals finish with I-M on the end. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's right. But the other variant on the spelling of this word actually has a different suffix. It ends in what we would transliterate as the letter N. That's a problem because biblical Hebrew doesn't do that. Now, if you're reading your Bible and assuming that every word in the whole text must be a Hebrew word, then the solution seems easy. Disregard that suffix with the letter N in it, change it to an M, which would be correct in Hebrew grammar, and move on. But this creates problems for us because in the effort to conform that variant spelling to Hebrew, what we've ended up doing is creating a Hebrew word that doesn't work in the context. We end up having to explain how it is that these fearsome warriors that had the Israelite spies so terrified were somehow defeated enemies that had been killed in battle. They'd be described literally as those who had been fallen upon. So the spies go into the promised land and see these Canaanite warriors who apparently have been defeated or killed in battle and they're frightened of them. That makes absolutely no sense. You could argue for that in Genesis 6, although I think it's highly improbable and just as awkward to deal with, but it certainly doesn't work in Numbers 13. So what are we supposed to do? We have one spelling of the word that doesn't make sense in Hebrew, and we have a Hebrew spelling of the word that doesn't make sense in its context in either of the two places where we find that spelling. Our listeners have probably guessed by now that the answer is in the fact that it isn't a Hebrew word. The root form N-P-L-N isn't Hebrew. It is a Semitic term, and you can see that from the clear relationship that it has to biblical Hebrew, but it's not Hebrew. It's Aramaic. And how do we know that? 
Well, just as you mentioned, the suffix on the end of a masculine plural form in Hebrew has the I-M on the end. But in Aramaic, masculine plural forms end in I-N and function in the same way. That means we're looking at an Aramaic word, not a Hebrew one. So what's an Aramaic word doing in a Hebrew text? Well, you know, the great thing about the ancient world, particularly in that region of the world, is that with so many related languages to draw from, you can always find a word to insert in your vocabulary if the term you're looking for doesn't exist in your own language. We get examples of this throughout the Bible. It's not uncommon to find Akkadian, Arabic, Hittite, Canaanite, and all kinds of languages represented here and there where words have failed the Hebrew scribes. We do this in English all the time to give our own literature a certain je ne sais quoi, etc. Gesundheit. Merci. So instead of dismissing the idea, what we need to do is explore the possibility of what the author could have been trying to convey that doesn't necessarily find expression in Hebrew. And then we have to figure out whether or not it would be appropriate to find a word from a certain language in a certain text. And could the author reasonably have expected his audience to know that terminology? Realising that the term Nephilim forms part of the description of the people being talked about in these two narratives in Genesis and Numbers, we need to examine the narrative context that provides the greatest detail to help us figure out the meaning of the term. That's why Numbers 13 is important. It's not that you can't understand Genesis 6 without Numbers 13, at least as far as the original audience is concerned, because they had the advantage of being a high-context audience who didn't need lessons in language and grammar to be able to figure this out. This only becomes necessary for us because we're so far removed from the original context. So let's read some Bible and see what we can learn. Admittedly, this is going to be familiar turf for many of our listeners, but it's important. What I'm going to give you now is an extended excerpt from Numbers chapter 13. Here's the reading, and I'm going to break in with a bit of commentary here and there. So this is Numbers 13 from verse 27. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. All right, so here we have a description of powerful people. Those who argue against the interpretation of giants will say that powerful doesn't mean large. Yeah, that's fine, but when was the last time you saw a skinny little man who was incredibly strong? Size and strength often go together, don't they? Let's not be excessively pedantic here. I mean, if you want to get really nitpicky about this, you actually can't see strength. You can't look at somebody and see their strength. So if you're looking at somebody and they look like they're strong, it's probably because they're large, let's be honest. The other thing to mention here is that Joshua is the leader of the group who go out, and that makes him the spokesman who reports to Moses. He would be the person who speaks on behalf of the group. He would be the person who brings up the sons of Anak. He mentions that they were seen in the land and he knows who they are because of his background. I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go over it in detail. But if you want to know more about this, check out some of my previous coverage of this topic where I talk about Joshua's Egyptian heritage and the Egyptian use of terminology related to Anak. You'll also find references to Egypt earlier in the chapter, which help to corroborate that context. Basically, this reference to the sons of Anak is a reference to divinized human rulers. So Joshua knows what they're up against, and he's not shying away from that reality. Instead, he views it as a positive thing because it helps illustrate the goodness of the land itself. Let's keep reading. From verse 29, the Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. 
Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people, for they are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. Okay, so we saw at that time, didn't we? Great size. And I've heard the argument here that says that the spies were lying because it says a bad report. That's actually not what the Hebrew means there. It's not a falsehood or a lie. It's a negative statement. They're talking about it like it's a bad thing rather than lying about it. But that's only part of the description. And it continues in the climax of this text. And the whole reason that we're reading this is verse 33. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So the description of these people of great size speaks of them as Nephilim and continues with comparative language, which we are not supposed to take literally, but certainly if somebody says that they seemed like a grasshopper compared to somebody else, or that the others looked at us like grasshoppers, then they're definitely trying to convey an important point. There's a clear size disparity in view. Nobody's arguing that the Nephilim looked at the Israelites as if they were green, had wings and six legs. This is about size, as we've already seen illustrated abundantly, and the word Nephilim forms part of that descriptive language. But how do we know that? I mean, how do we know that the term Nephilim is forming part of the description of great size? This is the part where that Aramaic spelling comes in. It occurs in the parenthetical statement, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. The fact that it occurs in parentheses is not accidental. This is because Translators recognise that this is a late addition to the text. At some point, the story has received some massaging by Jewish scribes, and this statement was inserted to help clarify the point. And this is the bit where we get that Aramaic spelling. That tells us some important information. Firstly, the fact that this is a later insertion into an early Israelite story means that we should be looking at a context beyond that of the recorded events in which to place the redaction of this narrative. Now, we have to look for a suitable context for that redaction. And the best context in which to find Aramaic language in use is going to be during the time of the Babylonian exile or shortly thereafter. We see that in the book of Daniel, as we were talking about recently, and that reminds us of an important fact. Daniel 1 mentions that the Jewish scribes were being taught the language and literature of the Babylonians. They were learning Aramaic. They were reading Babylonian literature. They were immersed in Babylonian culture, so it should be no surprise to find the language of Babylon employed in situations where the Hebrew language doesn't convey the idea. There is no word in Hebrew for giants, but there is one in Aramaic. It's Nephilim. And what do you know when you write it, because it's written without vowels included, just like Hebrew, it looks almost like a Hebrew word except for that pesky suffix at the end. So the scribe, adding his little point of clarification in Numbers chapter 13, has provided the spelling that would have been in use in Aramaic since there was no equivalent in Hebrew. Uh, doesn't that mean that the stories of the giants in Numbers 13 and Genesis 6 rely on late editing to insert that meaning into the text? Well, some people have taken it that way, but I think we're just fortunate to have one example of the word usage which preserves the intended meaning. Remember that it's not just this late redaction of Numbers 13 that features the word. Genesis chapter 6 is also embedded in the Babylonian cultural context. I think it makes a lot more sense to argue that the Aramaic spelling belongs in Genesis 6 and has since been edited out, either by mistake or otherwise. And the same thing is probably true of the other place in Numbers 13 where we find the Hebrew spelling. 
So that makes two out of three written contacts relatively late, and one, which would be the first part of numbers 1333, earlier. So how do we explain that one? If that was written before the exile, could it have been Aramaic, or was it something else? Yeah, that's a good point. We still have to explain that early use of the term, which is most likely pre-Babylonian. I think it still makes sense to see it as a loan word from Aramaic because that's the only reason why a later scribe would be able to offer commentary on that using a clearly Aramaic spelling. And again, that's going to come back to the fact that the Hebrew language doesn't have a word that means giants, which is the whole reason why the clarification was necessary. And I think it points to the mistake of an early copyist of the text in Hebraizing the original spelling, not having understood that this was an Aramaic term in use. So what I'm saying is that the earliest version of the text probably had the original Aramaic spelling edited out before that clarification was added later on. By the way, Aramaic was the primary spoken language in Egypt during the Second Temple period. I just thought I'd mention that since we have so much Egyptian context in this part of the Book of Numbers. Okay, well, I'm glad we've managed to, to clear all that up, but what does all that mean? It means that when we look at the first instance of the word Nephilim in Numbers 13, we see a likely instance of borrowing a word that had never been used in Hebrew before in the context of describing people who were of great size, which the rest of that context makes clear. The next time we see the word used is in the annotation provided by a later Jewish redactor, which adds some clarification to help explain for Jewish readers what that terminology meant by tying it back into more clearly understood Egyptian background material in the case of the Anakim. And it means that when we find the same terminology in use in Genesis chapter 6, which is presented as an earlier narrative setting with a later authorship, we have a term that's readily understood by its target audience, being the people of Judea, who had been exposed to the language and literature of the Babylonians as described in Daniel chapter 1. That means for the audience reading Genesis chapter 6, the use of the term Nephilim carried with it associations to people groups that they were already historically familiar with, that being the Anakim. But what other evidence do we have aside from Numbers chapter 13 that the Anakim, I keep thinking of Darth Vader when I say that, really were giants? Well, we've got two references in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 2 which specifically compare other tribes to the Anakim in the context of their height. When the author says, as tall as the Anakim, he doesn't say it because they were average. You don't use a word like tall to describe normal height. It's for above average height. When Princess Leia asks, aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? She's referring to the fact that there's an expected standard size and Luke Skywalker is less than that. So the word short is comparative and it means below average height. This is really obvious stuff, but I have to spell it out for the sake of some people who are given to extreme pedantry and denial of the clear affirmation of the text. Yeah, okay, so that, that's obvious enough. But what about the Aramaic term, Nephilim? How do we know that means giants? That's a good question, and I think the best way to tackle that is to look at Aramaic literature. The most accessible Aramaic literature would be the Book of Giants, which was discovered at Qumran. It's a pretty interesting read, and it features a synthesis of all kinds of ideas extending right back to Babylonian mythology. In that text, Gilgamesh gets mentioned. He's referred to as one of the giants, and we know from the Epic of Gilgamesh that he was described as being of significant height, specifically 16 and a half feet tall. He's also, perhaps most importantly, the product of a divine human mixture. So that means we have Aramaic literature using the term Nephilim, the same term which was written as Nephilim in the Bible, to describe people of immense stature who were the product of illicit unions between humans and the divine. All right, so where does that leave us then for our reading of Genesis 6? 
What it means is that we can reasonably conclude that when the author of Genesis 6 used the term Nephilim, they did so with the intent of conveying the idea that these people were, in fact, of significantly larger than average size and strength. And they did so in order to bring to mind the story of the Anakim in Numbers chapter 13. So we can be confident in the translation of the word as giants. That means that we don't read Genesis 6 and say that the Nephilim are not described as being large, so we can't say they were giants. Instead, we have to read it as the people were described as Nephilim, which means they were giants. And that kind of flips the whole argument against that interpretation on its head, doesn't it? Was it always interpreted that way, though? It was certainly interpreted that way throughout the entire span of the Second Temple period. That's why the Greek translation of the Bible uses the term gigantes, which is once again connected to these legendary beings of unusually great size. Yes, I am aware that not everybody referred to as a giant in Greek mythology was actually bigger than normal, but that doesn't take away from the fact that you can't say that in every case. And if a group of 70 Greek-speaking Jewish scribes were able to arrive at consensus on the meaning of the word and the way that it should be translated, I think we can be fairly confident that it's a good translation. And as I've argued at great length elsewhere, this understanding of the text was the dominant paradigm in use by all readers and interpreters until about the time of Constantine. So, yeah, I think it was a pretty robust interpretation and one that we're starting to see people rediscover today. Unfortunately for us, the church at the moment still seems to have the blinders of the Enlightenment, the Reformation and 19th century German scholarship to look through, not to mention 1950s science fiction, which are making things a bit more difficult because there's the tendency to just write it off as primitive ancient people who didn't understand what they were talking about. But hopefully as we continue to study this text and appreciate it, we can start to grasp the beauty and the mastery displayed in this amazing biblical literature. All right. Well, I guess that's the uh, major hurdle of this strange verse of Scripture out of the way. We've been talking for so long and so far we've uh, only managed to cover the first two words of the verse. So where do we go next? Okay. Well, as the text says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Some translations have in the earth. Sometimes when I see the way people interpret this verse, I just roll my eyes so hard that it hurts. But I, I really don't want to waste much time on this. So before we get talking about the subterranean realms of the hollow earth, let's just acknowledge that the Hebrew term in use here is the word Eretz, which really should be translated as land. That means we're not talking about a planet. We're not talking about a continent. We're not talking about flat earth cosmology. And we're definitely not talking about living in caves or anything like that. Basically, the expression on the earth in this instance is really a terrible rendering of the phrase in the land. And you know, when we say in the land, we don't mean literally in it, like underground. If I said I had the fastest car in my neighborhood, that doesn't mean that my car is buried somewhere in the neighborhood. When the princess says she's the fairest maiden in the land, she doesn't mean she's the prettiest one in the graveyard. So when the text says that the Nephilim were in the land, that doesn't mean that they lived underground or something. That'd be crazy talk. <laughs> Okay, so you're saying that just because the text mentions giants, it doesn't mean we can just invent whatever we like to make it sound even more fantastic? That's right. I am definitely saying that. Well, that's disappointing. All right, so why does the text say in those days and also after that? Good question. And again, it has a pretty straightforward answer, although listening to some people, you wouldn't think so. We have to remember that this text is written in retrospect and looks back on a former time. And of course, this narrative is set in here intentionally to provide an introduction to the flood story. Knowing that, it should be fairly obvious that the flood is the central orienting point of human prehistory. That means that if you're going to talk about things that happened in those days, 
and you want to say that it was happening both before and after the flood, then you're going to have to make that clear. And that's what this statement does. There were giants before and there were giants afterward. And as we've already seen from our brief dip into Numbers chapter 13, the term Nephilim gets used both before and after the flood. But it's a lot more common to find other terminology after the flood, which identify the Nephilim with particular tribes and people groups. I'm not going to spend any time on that here, but I have tons of information about that in my book. Okay, yeah, I could see how that would uh, easily snowball into hours and hours of discussion. But I, I did have a question that follows on from this. I've noticed that in some Bibles it says, and also after that, whenever the sons of God came into the daughters of men. And the Bible only talks about this happening one time, right? Yeah, that's right, Chris. It is just one time. We don't have any scriptural support for the idea that this same kind of sexual union that's described here in Genesis 6 happened ever again, at least not in the manner described in this passage. Again, I've talked about this at length several times, and I go into more detail about it in my book. Basically, the reason that some Bibles have it translated as whenever is because of a certain grammatical ambiguity. But what do you do when you encounter ambiguity? You look for other biblical texts that bring clarity because, as you'll often hear in a hermeneutics class, the correct method of interpretation is to allow those things that are clear to help you interpret those that are ambiguous instead of doing it the other way around. First Peter is very clear this happened one time, which was before the flood, and it didn't happen again after that. Okay, but we were just saying that there were Nephilim after the flood, so what's going on here? Well, it turns out that there's more than one way to embiggen people, and we're going to talk more about that when we get to Genesis 10 and the introduction of Nimrod into this story. But I can't wait that long. Oh, we're giants, and I want them now. Now. Well, it's a good thing that that's what we're talking about today, isn't it? And for anyone who can't wait until we get to Genesis 10 to talk about how we got giants again after the flood, what am I going to say, Chris? You're going to say you can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, on Amazon in paperback and Kindle, and I recommend that you do. Exactly, and I would have said it just like that too. It's a perfectly cromulent response. So again, the issue here is not that it's grammatically impossible for the sons of God to make another appearance and produce biological offspring with human women, as per Genesis 6. The issue is that it's contrary to the affirmation of Scripture, so we need to be aware that we can't just take this little nugget of text and build a little world of our own imagination here. You're telling me that I can't use a second incursion of fallen angels as plot armour for my favourite theories about the giants? Yeah, well, you know, the thing about plot armour is that it actually needs to be featured in the plot in order to function. That's literally the whole idea. And that means you can't just insert a second incursion in every biblical story that might have connections to giants in order to explain their presence. Speaking of presence, let's get back to what's actually present in the text. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. Okay, that's fairly straightforward. I mean, I was going to say explicit, but it's really only explicit if you understand the use of the language there. And I think anyone who's been reading their Bible for longer than a week should understand that this is considered a polite way to express the idea of sexual union. Let me just be really clear on this, though. This is ordinary terminology for sexual intercourse in marriage, contrary to the view of some parts of the church and in fringe theology. This isn't some kind of three-way relationship between two human parents and some kind of divine intermediary. I've spoken in the past about how trying to reduce these unions to mathematical equations does not work. When they say Gilgamesh is two-thirds divine, it doesn't mean that there were three parties involved and only one of them was human and somehow all three of them had a sexual relationship and a child was born. 
you'll notice that there's a complete absence of any kind of language that would indicate anything other than an ordinary marital union here. There's no vicarious participation of divine beings through human hosts. I'm not saying that divine beings were not involved. I just don't subscribe to the idea that they can't be embodied and therefore they couldn't have been physically involved. I don't see that in the text. I don't see that occurring in any context anywhere in scripture. And you can't point to things like demonic possession as being compatible in any sense. We have zero evidence that demonic possession works that way. And we need to be very careful not to start equating terms like demons with sons of God. They are not the same. So you're saying the sons of God had the ability to manifest in their own ordinary human bodies? Well, I would say human-like, but yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I've talked about this so many times in the past that it hardly bears repeating. But I would ask anybody who's skeptical of this idea to sit down and read the story of Abraham's three visitors and the destruction of Sodom. Read Genesis 18 and 19 and pay careful attention to all the stuff that divine beings are capable of doing in physical, material bodies. Look at the interactions they had with people and the interactions that others wanted to have with them. You can't do that kind of stuff if you haven't got a physical body. Again, there are a ton of Q&A segments that I've done talking about this. And of course, I wrote extensively about it in my book. Also in the book, I go into detail about the language employed in the letter of Jude in the New Testament, which also makes this very clear if you understand the Greek, in particular the term oikaterion, which essentially describes the powerful and glorious form of divine beings as a kind of garment that can be stripped away. You could also think of it as a place of habitation, like a tent or tabernacle. So these divine beings basically gave up their glorious forms in order to be able to participate in these relationships with human women? Well, I'm not sure that we could say that they knowingly broke that barrier with the full understanding that they wouldn't be able to return to their previous forms, but that is something we would have to speculate on beyond the boundaries of this text. The point for our purposes here is to reinforce the natural physical nature of the marital unions between these divine beings and human women. And that's being stressed because it gives us the logical connection between the first and last parts of this verse. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So it should be pretty clear that the Nephilim who were introduced at the beginning of the verse are the offspring of these unions, which are further referred to here as the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And yes, I am familiar with all kinds of arguments that try to posit the Nephilim alongside the humans in the text as though they're somehow not related, but just mentioned for no reason as contemporaries. So yeah, like these people were like doing stuff and while they were doing stuff, there were some like other guys around at the same time, but that doesn't matter. This is pretty common with those people who support the Neanderthal man view. It just shows a clear ignorance of the natural flow of literature. You don't just randomly insert a fact that bears no relevance to the story being told or the messaging within that story. We've talked before about how the purpose of the primeval history is not to give some kind of a just-so story about scientifically observed phenomena. But that idea of mighty men isn't necessarily connected to giants, though, is it? Like, what about David's mighty men, for example? That's essentially the same language, right? Yeah, you're right about that, Chris. The Hebrew term there is giborim, and it usually gets used in relation to warriors and strong people as even the feminine giborah, so it's not just men. It's interesting that this terminology occurs in contexts involving David in particular, because the story of David is intentionally told to reflect his victory against the giants. This is casting David positively as the man after God's own heart who participates in the reversal of the perversion of the natural order that was introduced to the world back here in Genesis. Of course, we're going to see that ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
but David provides something of the type. Anyway, as I mentioned earlier, the Hebrew language doesn't contain its own word that means giant, so the closest they had was Gibor. And as we've just acknowledged, that word gets used for other things as well, not just giants. And again, that's because it isn't a direct correspondence for giants. Having said that, it's pretty clear that the concept of the giant was part of the semantic range of that term in its practical usage, which is why we find it connected with not only the narratives concerning the giants, but also the stories that address the way that God has been dealing with that problem, hence the appearance of that term around King David. And I can hear people objecting on chronological grounds here and saying, well, if Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4 are quite late, having been written in the exile, doesn't that mean all that prior stuff like Deuteronomistic history would have no knowledge of it and couldn't possibly be interacting with that story? And that would be a fair objection. If the stories of Israel's kingdoms were written earlier than the stuff written during the exile, then we couldn't legitimately say that Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4 had any influence on those earlier stories. So how can we look at the use of a term like Giborim and suggest that there's some kind of messaging at play? And I think that's what brings us to the final part of this verse. When we read the mighty men of old, the men of renown, we just need to let that sink in. The people of Israel were aware of these stories. They knew about the giants and the sons of God. They were famous. This wasn't the first time they'd heard of these ideas. That's implicit in the text, but it's also very clear when we go back to Numbers chapter 13 and recognise that the spies knew exactly what they were looking at, even without the late use of Aramaic terminology like Nephilim in play. There's considerable evidence that existing Hebrew terminology such as Giborim was in use in Israel's earliest stories. We see it in Deuteronomy and Joshua. It's woven into the narrative here in Genesis 6. We see it again in Genesis 10, and I think we can make a fairly good case that the use of Giborim here intentionally sets the stage for certain episodes in Israel's written history. And I should point out that we can't rule out late massaging of the Deuteronomistic history to capitalise on those connections for the purpose of powerful storytelling. It's like the biblical authors are bringing these stories together carefully so that we can pick up on the themes and messages in the text that might not have been clear otherwise. Exactly, and that doesn't just happen in stories about King David. You'll find it in all sorts of places in the Hebrew Bible. You've got stuff like the Book of Ruth. Boaz gets described as a gibor. He's not a giant, he's just a strong guy. Again, there's no Hebrew word for giant, so a term that suffices for giant is also going to be used of somebody who has considerable size and strength. And how does Ruth participate in the story of Israel, which will ultimately culminate in the birth of the Messiah? She sleeps with a gibor. This is an intentional reversal on the part of the author of the book of Ruth, and the proof of that is that Matthew also picks up on this theme in the genealogy of Jesus that he presents in his gospel. And there are heaps of other examples of this, but we haven't got the time. That's actually something I'd like to hear other people's stories about. If you have a favourite story of the Hebrew Bible, which connects back to this mythology, maybe drop a post or a comment in the Answers to Giant Questions discussion group on Facebook. Good idea. Well, we are definitely out of time for this episode, but I think we managed to cover verse 4 in a reasonable reasonable amount of detail for a podcast episode, and if you want more, as Tim said, there's always the book. But for now, it's time for Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us at the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. You know what we haven't done in ages, Tim? Cartwheels. I reckon I haven't done a cartwheel since I was nine. Fair enough. But I was going to say a rapid-fire round of Q&A. 
which will also leave you breathless. Oh, yeah, there's that too. Okay, uh, shoot. All right, here we go. We're going to turn it up to 11 because that's how many questions we got. And the first one comes from Emily. Emily asked, did the sons of God actually have sex or is it more like some science experiment where they spliced human DNA with theirs? Okay. Firstly, I recognise a joke question when I see one. Thanks, Emily. That's Emily Dixon from the Faith and Other Oddities podcast. Just wanted to embarrass her there for a moment. Emily's not being serious, and I certainly hope that our listeners understand that this really can't be a serious proposition. Nobody in the ancient world was thinking in terms of 1950s science fiction. Just read the text for what it says. We went over this earlier. It's not genetic manipulation. I don't know what you call it in your house, but I don't call it that. Moving on. Okay. Terry asked, should we take Genesis 6, 1 to 4 literally? And if so, what does literally even mean? Good question, Kerry. Uh, I should mention this is Kerry Griffel from the Genesis Marks the Spot podcast and a previous guest on the show. Uh, firstly, there are lots of people who get confused between taking something seriously and taking something literally. But for me, I think it's yes to both of those propositions. I don't see anything in the text that suggests that we should be reading this under the assumption that it's fiction. But things get a bit more complicated when we start talking about metaphor and allegory and that kind of thing. In our modern style of interpretation, we tend to separate those things out from the facts as though they cannot coexist. And that just wasn't the case in the ancient world. As far as what literal interpretation means, most people are talking about a grammatical, historical interpretation. In other words, assuming the author intended his audience to read the text in a sense most naturally understood in that culture and with reference to real events in space and time. I'm okay with that as a primary understanding of this text here in Genesis, but I also acknowledge the use of the narrative for didactic, that is teaching, and polemic, that is refutational, purposes. And that's going to come through in features like the particular terminology and narrative structure. Look at the way the text is worded. I've been talking about this archetypal narrative. You don't get that in straight history. Look at the use of different terminology like ground and land. That's intentional. Look at the placement of this tradition between the genealogy of Genesis 5 and the introduction of the flood narrative. That's deliberate and it's designed to draw contrast and to introduce the reason for the story that follows. Terry also asked, do we really need one Enoch or the Apkalu info if we have Jubilees? Well, that one's got a simple answer. Jubilees is effectively a watered-down version of the tradition from First Enoch, which itself depends on the Mesopotamian stories of the Apkalu. So you wouldn't have Jubilees if it wasn't for those earlier traditions. And I think it's a lot more helpful to go back to the earlier source material in order to get more precise correlations between the specific terminology in use in those traditions and the biblical material. It also helps us to avoid getting into later traditions and philosophies that are further removed from the worldview that produced the original texts. Again, thanks for that question, Kerry. The rest of these questions uh, all come from people who are in the Fallen Angels and Nephilim Facebook group, so you know they're going to be interesting. Golden Diamond asked, can anyone please tell me why Lucifer betrayed God and how many angels did he bring to the revolt by name? Wow, you can always tell when the question's going to be a good one, right? Okay, firstly, the Bible's pretty clear in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that it was the pride of this divine being that the Latin Bible calls Lucifer that resulted in his rebellion. As for how many angels he has on his side and what their names are, we can only speculate, but I'm not going to do that. Admerson asked, would the Nephilim have a lower chance of salvation than God's other creatures? 
Mm, okay, first things first, the Nephilim were not created by God, but that aside, it's not just a lower chance. There is no chance of salvation for the Nephilim. Jesus Christ did not become a giant to die for the sins of giants. There is no atonement for their sin. Their very existence is contrary to the good order that God created. As such, the only remedy for them is annihilation. Next question. Keep them coming. Daniel asked, are the fallen ones from a certain category of angels or does it include all of their kind? Mm, Okay, so if by fallen ones you mean the sons of God from Genesis 6, then they certainly are a category of divine beings. Now, that's technical terminology. As I've mentioned in recent episodes, the sons of God were of a higher order than regular angels, which are described as messengers. The sons of God are involved in deliberations in God's heavenly court, and they participate in determining and enacting the destinies of mankind. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 4. They have free will, but they also carry out the will of God. Obviously, some of them chose not to do that. And yes, they are definitely a distinct category of divine beings. Thanks for that one, Daniel. Peggy asked, if Adam and Eve were the first and only people on the earth, who did the sons of Adam and Eve marry and have children with? Good question, Peggy. If Adam and Eve were the first and only people on the earth, but I don't think we need to interpret the Bible that way at all. In fact, I would argue otherwise. I would say that they get referred to as first because of their preeminence among a population, which means that they were not the only people on earth. I covered this in some detail in the early episodes of this podcast back in seasons one and two. We've got to pay attention to the use of symbolic language in the creation stories. The dust from which the man was formed is representative of a vast human population. And he's just one of the multitude chosen by God. I haven't got the time to explain that in detail here, but if you go back to the early episodes of the podcast, you'll be able to get a lot more info on that. Senior Watchman asked, what if aliens are Nephilim from the days of Noah? You know, I had a feeling this was going to be a good question as soon as you read his name, Chris. So the question is, are giants really aliens or did the giants become aliens? Again, this is science fiction. Let's start with the category distinctions. Aliens. What are aliens? I won't try to put words in the mouth of our questioner here, but I think we're probably talking about extraterrestrials. And if that's the case, then I'd be comfortable talking about the class of beings we know as Elohim in that category. So that's going to include things like your sons of God, your angels and that kind of thing, even God himself. I mean, as long as Elohim means not limited to residence in time and space, then yeah, but there's a catch there. That means the Elohim don't come from some other place within time and space. You see how that works? So if aliens means that they come from other planets or something, that's not going to work. But also, the question specifically mentions the Nephilim, and they aren't Elohim. Those are distinct categories. The Nephilim, well, I just spent half an hour explaining this. They're not the same as the sons of God. It is not. So they were embodied, and that means not extraterrestrial because they were born here. But then this question might have in mind the ongoing ramifications of the Nephilim. So their spirits remain after the death of their bodies, right, according to Jewish Second Temple period literature anyway. So could the unclean spirits of the giants perhaps be or appear to be aliens, even aliens from other planets? I'm going to say this. I wouldn't rule out some kind of deception to that effect, but I don't think the demons really have much power to pull off something like that. When you look at what demons actually do in Scripture, it ain't much. I think we need to be looking at the higher order beings like the rebellious sons of God for that kind of thing. Anyway, I hope that helps. Beatrice asked, honest question, if an angel falls from grace, is it automatically a demon? Or does the fallen angel have an opportunity to regain God's grace because our creator is merciful? 
Mm, again, categories, uh, they're not the same. The difference between angels and demons isn't a moral distinction or a case of crossing a line somewhere. These are different things. Apples and oranges. I've already mentioned those distinctions earlier. As far as getting back into the good books is concerned, forget what I just said, because what I mentioned earlier about salvation for the giants is actually applicable here too. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ, and he did not die for the sins of angels. Jean asked, did normal-sized ladies survive after giving birth to Nephilim giants, or were the babies normal-sized at birth, six to eight pounds? I'm sure they had no way to tell how big the babies would be in the womb, and they probably didn't have the technology to perform C-sections or even turn the baby if they were breech. Okay, well, I guess this is a fair question if you take a text like First Enoch at face value where it says the giants were 300 cubits in height. But we actually get nothing from the Bible to suggest that the giants were any larger than the tallest people you might encounter in the modern day. So, yeah, women are going to have some large babies, but we're still not talking about anything beyond the scope of what we would see typically. As far as people having the technology to deal with abnormally large babies, I don't know if there'd be anything in particular required that people in the ancient world couldn't deal with. People in pre-technological societies have always had particular knowledge of how to deal with natural issues like childbirth, and that just comes from generations of knowledge passed down and shared in the community. But yeah, when it comes to the birth of the Nephilim, I don't think we're dealing with anything particularly monstrous in terms of the childbirthing experience. You do come across elaborations on late Jewish stories about this, where the women die in childbirth from being torn apart by these enormous giants coming out of the womb, but nothing from original source material. But the rabbinic material seems to take a very literal and wooden approach to those original stories, and they don't seem to recognise the exaggeration employed in the source material. Lastly, Rago asked, if you read the Bible correctly, there are giants and Nephilim. Nephilim are offspring of humans and angels, and I mentioned once in Genesis 6-4. So where did giants originate from? <sighs> you know what? Um, I, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you tell us we're not reading it right and then you wonder why you haven't got an answer to your question. Um, sometimes I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm out. Okay, I think Tim's broken, uh, but we're going to have to leave it there. We'll come back with more next time. See you then. See you then. I'm going to go lie down. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help, but a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode, so if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. I am excited because we finally get to talk about giants for one episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is exciting.
they might be giants, or is that a band? Yeah, there's a band. Is that um, Lego Techniques? Is that what it's still mm. called? Yeah, nice. Well, well done you. Was it uh, easy to build or was it frustrating? I thought it was pretty reasonable uh, skill level. I mean, I can I played with Lego my whole life, so yeah. <laughs> no, no trouble. You know, these things are always just down to attention to detail. Like when you have problems with Lego, it's because you missed a step or didn't see some detail in the instruction, you know. Yeah. Then you end up paying for it later when you've spent the next hour building on, you know, some structural part that wasn't complete. <laughs> <laughs> no, it came together pretty well. Nice. And do you display these items somewhere? I do. In the, because I'm old, in the China cabinet, basically renders them visible without being touchable. Smart. Mm. Yes, my toy room is everything's touchable. Well, you can do that because there's no one there to touch it without your permission. It just means after you know things fall over because some things are very precariously balanced. Yeah, that's that's fine. It's nothing breakable in there, really. You know, when they say poseable, what they really mean is like you know just poseable. Yes, right. Like, yep. Just the the finest hair's breadth balance between being upright in a recognisable pose that looks good and just falling over all day. That's uh, like me when I go to the pub. That's why I'm yeah. sitting I'm right now. <laughs> uh, what, a 6.4, are we? Five. Oh, blimey. How did that happen? I have Chewbacca living in my house. Did you hear him? I've got out on a couple of good bike rides. Ah, back on the bike. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how was the bike experience? Oh, lovely. Mm. Oh, good. I have given up on um, half-pipe stunts. Good. Probably because of it. Yep. And your arm is okay? I now live with it as it is, and that's, that's as good as it's going to get. So it only hurts when I move it. See that uh, photo I sent? Uh, it's quite humorous, wasn't it, the oh, two of us? Yeah, wow. Um, boy, and, and I looked like us 15 or something. Look at my hair. Look at yours. We had so yeah. much hair. So much hair. So much hair. Too much to share.